Hello, everyone. Welcome to another uh, Podcast 101 session. Although I will say that perhaps by now it may no longer feel 101. If any of you out there feel that I've uh, gone beyond 101, don't hesitate to let me know. But regardless, it's still safe to say 101 podcast. Well, I will uh, say that uh, this is going to be the last uh, podcast uh, session of the book uh, Dan Abrams's um, bestseller, John Adams Under Fire, The Founding Fathers' Fight for Justice in the Boston Massacre Murder Trial. So uh, this is basically what we would call the conclusion or epilogue. It's been a great ride, uh, but I will say this now and I will say it at the end, it's not completely over. However, this is the epilogue for uh, for this um, book. In other words, I feel that I have covered just about everything there is um, regarding this great um, read uh, from Dan Abrams, but now it's time to finalize it. Well, how do you go about finalizing something so historic as the Boston Massacre. Well, I feel it is best to sum it up by talking about some uh, essential key players. I mean, there were a lot of essential key players, but at the same time, should you try to narrow it down? Perhaps so. Who Who did I personally think was an essential key player besides John Adams himself? Well, I read a great deal of many key players, but I had to narrow it down to um, a select number, being uh, less than five, but I uh, ended up choosing four. Uh, The two uh, lawyers that represented uh, the prosecution being Robert Treat Payne and Samuel Quincy, um, who John Adams' wife is related to, as well as Captain Thomas Preston and Henry Knox. And ironically, I will admit that um, I have not uh, mentioned uh, Captain uh, Henry Knox um, throughout any of this uh, story until uh, tonight. So I do apologize for not having mentioned him until now. It might be safe to say that I did miss out on something that was important to share, but the good news is that it will get shared here soon. Well, I did mention Robert Treat Payne earlier, and that um, while he was a pros- uh, the lead prosecutor, and while he and John Adams did work together on a variety of um, what we might think of as projects today, they did work hand-in-hand hand on some uh, law-related matters, they did have their differences, and that, and at times they found one another to um, be hard to um, be around. And that sometimes is what can happen with uh, people who are close to one another. We like to assume that every time they're around each other, everything's just great. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes it can be because of political differences, like in the case with John Adams being on the defense Robert Payne on the prosecution side. You know, what's ironic is that uh, after the Boston Massacre trials, 
it seemed like Robert Payne and John Adams were able to um, still get along. It turns out about six years later, when a famous document uh, was signed, not just signed, but it uh, altered the course of human mankind, the Declaration of Independence. Robert Payne was one of a handful of signers from Massachusetts to have signed this famous uh, document that um, declared our official separation from King George in England. So, besides being a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Robert Payne himself had went on to serve as a juror and an elective representative. If, if having your differences is one thing, learning about Samuel Quincy in the aftermath of the, of the trials was very shell-shocking. Samuel Quincy was the only member of his prominent family to become a loyalist. It's bad enough that, that one might already be a loyalist, but to become a loyalist after trying to prosecute Captain Preston and his own men being of British, um, what do you call it, adherence, or ad- adhering not only to their superior being the king, his majesty, Samuel Quincy decides that, hey, I'm going to do the unthinkable. I'm going to become not just a loyalist, I'm going to leave my wife and children and start a new life in England. Betrayal. Yes, there were um, there was family dysfunction in the 18th century. And a lot of it, as I had mentioned from a previous podcast, had to do with loyalties. Just because one was a patriot in their family, it didn't mean that the rest of the family went along with um, that one individual. History has shown that there were many divided households where certain members were loyal to the crown, others were opposite. And it did cause a lot of uh, unnecessary tension to the point where some family members were disowned because of their loyalties. Well, as for um, Samuel Quincy, because he decided to betray his family, it led him to be forever banned from returning to Massachusetts. And what a rightful punishment that is. He never showed any remorse for for abandoning his family. I think that's a very terrible thing to do. Yes, mistakes can be made, but some mistakes are not forgiven, or they just can't be forgiven, period. And this is one of them. You know, I can't even say too, and I had I did learn this not from the book I read on John on Dan Abrams's uh, novel. I had read this before um, in another book um, that was actually written um, by um, a, a Richard uh, David McCullough, who is a well-known author who has written several uh, unique uh, books. He wrote a book uh, some years back on John Adams, and I read the book about two years ago. It was. And John Adams himself was not um, immune to family dysfunction in his own immediate family. Years later, um, around the time he became president, one of his children 
one of his own children, I should say, being a son uh, named Charles, became an alcoholic. It was bad enough that he became an alcoholic, but that he, but sadly, he did not want to help himself. He abandoned his family. He did this more than once, and it got to the point where John Adams himself could no longer take his son's behavior. He could no longer tolerate it. He had no other choice but to disown his son because he did not want to help himself. He had set a bad example, not just for himself, but had embarrassed his family. Sadly, back in the 18th century, uh, there was no such thing as AA treatment centers. Now, not to get off track or anything, but I think this is something that should be shared. In colonial Virginia, if one had an alcohol problem or anything like what we think of as modern-day alcoholism, that individual met one-on-one with the minister being the minister or a trusted advisor from within the Anglican Church, or we know as the Church of England. If meeting one-on-one with your minister or a vestryman was not enough or just the message didn't come across, you were then sent to the pillory where you spent perhaps an entire day. And lastly, if that alone, if having not um, gotten the message through um, your minister or vestryman to uh, spending a day in the pillory didn't work, you were completely expelled from your community. I don't know how often that would have happened in colonial Virginia, but regardless, it was a very, very um, awful um, act of um, unruly behavior to be engaging in. What I do know for uh, Massachusetts, uh, in the case of uh, taverns and all, if uh, tavern keepers knew of people who had drinking problems, signs were to be posted outside the tavern stating that if anyone uh, was aware of John Smith's problems regarding his drinking, that he was to be prohibited from entering a tavern. So, um, back to the main focal point of what we are uh, talking about here, that uh, the next person I find very interesting uh, is none none other than Captain Thomas Preston. He has been mentioned many of times already. Now, what I didn't know was that um, after his acquittal, he retired right away from the army, and following his trial, he supposedly settled in Ireland. I also mentioned this earlier, but I'll mention it again. Even John Adams was well aware of this, that Captain Preston himself never thanked him, meaning Captain Preston never bothered to thank John Adams whatsoever for his work on his behalf. Now you think about this, people. John Adams risked his own life. He stuck his neck out for Captain Preston and his eight soldiers. He wasn't doing it for 15 minutes of fame. He was trying to teach a lesson, and I will mention this towards the very end. He was trying to teach a lesson to the entire community, regardless of their loyalties, regardless of whether they were a patriot or loyalist, he was trying to get a very powerful message across. 
And that message, one of the messages was that, hey, yes, it is very easy to get caught up in the, in the moment with your emotions, but at the end of the day, emotions cannot override the facts, uh, that, the facts that were brought before the jury and the audience present at the trial, or not just the trial, the trials rather, I should say. So I, it's probably safe to say that for Captain Preston, that he never really saw John Adams as a true loyalist. Very fair to say. But Adams, see here, as I mentioned earlier, John Adams um, did not want the jury to be influenced in any way politically or uh, by means of uh, an interest group. And it's fair to say that the Sons of Liberty, as radical as they were, th that um, group of, um, what do you call it, ardent patriots, or in the eyes of loyalists, the lo many loyalists saw the Sons of Liberty as Sons of Anarchy. The, the bottom line is, is that the Sons of Liberty were promoting um, interests. They were promoting principles and ideas that on one hand were good, on the other hand dangerous. But what John Adams feared the most at the time was that the Sons of Liberty would persuade the jury to do everything there was in their power to convict not only Captain Preston and his men, but perhaps have all of them be executed. I almost wonder, had that been the outcome, would any valuable lessons have been truly taught? It's safe to say no. So, Captain Preston, um, it's even something else that should be mentioned, too, that when John Adams later became minister to England, he even saw Captain Preston somewhere, in London it was, and the captain failed to acknowledge him. I think it could be safe to say by that point in time, the American Revolutionary War, or the Revolutionary War itself, had already come to an end, and I want to say this could have been by about 1787 because John Adams is not present in Philadelphia for the signing of the uh, Constitution. Not just the signing of, the, of our Constitution, but he's not present for any of the debates. And the same goes for Thomas Jefferson, who's already minister to France. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of the game, but it does make sense because John Adams stayed put in colonial America or even, should I say, America, when we officially declared our separation from England, we, um, we actually had decided by that point in time, around the signing of the Declaration of Independence, to have become uh, a united front. In other words, a united states, one nation. So, um, now, who else did I find uh, interesting? Henry Knox. Okay. This is the one person I did not mention until now, and I do apologize for not having done so. It might be fair to say that I might have missed out on something of, that was of relevant significance early on. But why am I mentioning Mr. Henry Knox now? Well, he had a, an important role in the uh, Boston Massacre. Henry Knox did testify for the prosecution, especially in Thomas Preston's trial. Well, what was Henry Knox um, known for at this time? Well, he was a seller of science and military books. 
you could almost say it, he was like running. It was like for him to be to have been able to run his own bookstore. He himself had even tried to keep the calm, or tried to uh, what do you call it? Um, preserve the peace. He saw what Captain Preston and his men had done on multiple occasions, not just so much on the night of March 5th, but he had seen other instances leading up to this event where soldiers and um, innocent civilians had engaged in numerous confrontations with one another. But it is safe to say that he himself saw how civilians had been knocked down and treated like dirt by the British uh, by the British um, presence. He, um, Mr. Knox himself had warned Captain Preston to take care, or I should say, look after your men. And, and, and in other words, he basically told Captain Preston not to allow any firings to take place, especially on the night of March 5th. And, and lastly... Now, he it wasn't so much that he warned Captain Preston, but he told him that, hey, look, that if you fire into the um, the crowd, of course, he didn't refer to them, the crowd as the mob, but if he basically saw the people of Boston as uh, everyday um, people, innocent civilians, but he basically said, hey, look, if you fire into that into that crowd of people, then you're going to have to pay dearly with your own life. In other words, yes, Henry Knox probably saw things that perhaps weren't appropriate in terms of um, inappropriate activity even on our side, but at the same time, he saw firsthand just how much suffering our own people were enduring, and perhaps it's safe to say that he was suffering internally. He may not have expressed it or shown it, but perhaps he was his own victim internally as well. Well, I can tell you this about Henry Knox. He went on to have a distinguished military career in the American Revolution. He worked his way from being a colonel to becoming a general. He went on to become one of George Washington's most trusted advisors. This says a lot right here for a a young individual who um, was, yes, well-known, was a well-known local in Boston but to have uh, had a marvelous military career and to be a trusted advisor to George Washington says, or should I say, speaks high volumes. And many places are named after Mr. Henry Knox, most notably Fort Knox, Kentucky, where many uh, were a fair, where a large number of gold is uh, stored in, um, what do you call it, in a lot of uh, secret vaults we should say. Knoxville, Tennessee is named after Henry Knox. Knox, Indiana, in case anybody wants to know where Knox, Indiana is, it is in the northern part of Indiana, right along the Indiana-Michigan line. It's on the outskirts of South Bend. Well, what about John Adams' legacy behind all of this? When I say behind all this, I'm referring to the the Boston Massacre trials. Was his reputation tarnished? Not necessarily 100% so. I will admit that he did lose some clients as a result of having defended uh, the British 
But I think he knew all along there was a likelihood of that happening. But he did earn a great deal of respect for his courage in defending the rule of law. How many guineas did he receive total for his representation of Captain Preston and the eight soldiers? The number is between 15 and 20. Anybody want to take a guess? The answer is 19. That may not seem like a lot of money, but it was a respectable amount considering how much sacrifice he made, not just for defending the accused, but for um, doing everything there was to avoid further turmoil, to avoid um, more uprisings, not just uprisings, but perhaps um, preventing further loss of life by um, seeing innocent innocent people die for all the wrong reasons. Well, in the years after um, these two trials, it wasn't much longer until uh, the Declaration of Independence comes along, and John Adams is there as um, being one of what's called the Committee of Five. He and Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, Robert Livingston all come together as a Committee of Five to help um, draft this Declaration of Independence. And John Adams was known, he was offered the, the role of uh, being the, um, the creator or the actual author of the Declaration of Independence, but he turned it down. He had a lot of faith and wisdom in a young man named Thomas Jefferson. He knew about Jefferson and how smart he was. But one of the things that... Um, I really have to give John Adams credit for, and this was out of um, unselfishness. He says to Thomas Jefferson, you're a Virginian, and a Virginian should be the one to draft this document. It might be fair to say because Virginia was the largest of the 13 colonies and had so much at stake like the um, the rest of her brethren around her. John Adams also said at that time, I'm a bit, I'm a bit uh, of a snob. In other words, I like to talk a lot. I'm all, I, I enjoy conflict. I enjoy a lot of other things that um, garner too much attention. Whereas Thomas Jefferson was the opposite, not a fan of conflict. He was more of a, he was a quiet person, believe it or not. Yes, he was a Renaissance man. But Thomas Jefferson actually um, actually was uh, the right person at the right time to sign, not just to sign the Declaration of Independence, but to write it. So both men's strengths and weaknesses went hand in hand to help make the impossible all the more possible. John Adams also negotiated a peace treaty with Great Britain Great Britain in 1783, which helped officially end the American Revolutionary War, or should I say the American Revolution. You know, people always think that, oh, 1781, after the British would surrender at Yorktown, that everything ended. Not necessarily. We had to um, go to um, Paris two years later, uh, being um, the Treaty of Paris that ultimately 
ended the um, hostilities between um, the 13 colonies and Great Britain. John Adams also served two terms as vice president to George Washington, being our nation's first vice president. Mr. Adams himself even said that it was one of the loneliest positions he had ever held. And historians know that George Washington, believe it or not, had excluded John Adams from various um, meetings between um, other key members of government at that time, most notably the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, and Secretary of War. And it is fair to say that even in the early days of our young republic's existence, the Secretary of State, for example, was far more powerful than the Vice President. It is fair to say, and I should say this, uh, besides serving two terms as Vice President, John Adams did become President in 1796, and only two Presidents were Federalists, George Washington and John Adams himself. It is also fair to say John Adams probably could have won a second term as President of the United States had it not been for another man who um, was very brilliant, but yet um, did a lot of damage to his own party, and perhaps because of that damage, ultimately led to its demise to where, by the early 19th century, it no longer existed. Alexander Hamilton. That topic might be for another time, but just remember that. If anybody wants to know why did the Federalist Party die? Well, there were a lot of reasons for it, but you could thank Alexander Hamilton. It is very fair to say that had John Adams not properly represented the accused in both of these trials, our modern-day judiciary, judiciary system might possibly have looked different. No matter what one's innocence or guilt is in any trial, regardless of the circumstances, everyone is entitled to a fair and speedy trial. And that was established when our Constitution came into um, law in 1787. But we have John Adams to thank for this. Had it not been for um, his courageous role, even defending the unimaginable, meaning the soldiers who fired into the crowd on the night of March 5th. We still have him to thank because if it weren't for him, who's to say that we would be entitled to have the right to a fair and speedy trial? We just don't know. But let's thank our forefathers. They made so many sacrifices. And if, the sad part is we've often taken that for granted. I've tried very hard not to take it for granted, and that could be in part because I enjoy history so much that I'm always having to be reminded of the fact that, hey, people before us, and we're not talking one or two generations, we're talking at least four or five generations back, they paid the price even before and after the American Revolution. So what is the true meaning or message of the Boston Massacre Trials? John Adams taught everyone in Boston, regardless of their loyalties, as I had said earlier, that emotions cannot overrule or override the facts to a trial. 
The facts themselves don't discriminate anything. They are solid, concrete evidence to a story or story-slash-trial, which are addressed to the audience, meaning the spectators, and to the jury. Based on the facts presented, the jurymen have the sole power of determining one's complete innocence or guilt. John Adams, in both trials, saved Boston from extra turmoil for close to three years. And lastly... To close this uh, podcast on the on the Boston Massacre, or should I say on Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire, regardless of what truly did happen on the night of March 5th, 1770, the Boston Massacre to this day is what truly ignited the American Revolution. Now, it is safe to say that had it not been for the Boston Massacre, there probably would have been another incident in Boston that truly could have ignited this um, American rev- this revolution movement. But it just so happened that on one night, not just on one night, but a multitude of events that occurred leading up to March 5th pretty much resulted in what we refer to as the straw that broke the camel's back. While both sides, in my opinion, are at fault for what happened, meaning the patriots and the loyalists, or should I say the patriots who jo- who were a part of that unruly mob crowd, f- throwing objects, shouting obscenities, being told after repeated warnings to disperse, or was it the not just the loyalists, but the troop, the presence of British troops coming, marching along the streets with full arrogance, attacking civilians, not abiding by local laws, Parliament's passage of legislation that denied um, everyday ordinary people a proper voice in government. These facts here can truly state this, that, hey, both sides are at fault. But did both sides come away with some form of um, victory as a result of the trials? Yes, as mentioned from last night, two of the eight soldiers were found guilty of manslaughter. That means right there that 25% was found to be um, at fault. The Loyalists also gained victory in that um, despite uh, six out of their eight um, fellow comrades being acquitted, they still were able to uphold some form of um, rules or laws on their books. But in the end, no matter how hard uh, we tried to avoid going to war, what happened on March 5th, 1770 would be the ultimate spark in the end that would lead us to go to war come April of 1775 when Paul Revere would ride through the streets of Lexington and Concord along with other fellow members of the Sons of Liberty warning people that the British were coming. Not just that the British were coming, but how to get ready to stand up to the mightiest empire in the world because it, it's one thing to stand up to the mightiest empire in the world, but you better be ready for what lies ahead and knowing how to fire the shot. 
heard round the world. Thank you for uh, allowing me to share Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire. I, I know many of you probably would say already, why should I read this book when I've heard so much um, great um, information? Well, I strongly say read this book because this is the closest thing you will get to an actual modern-day trial of 18th-century drama that we could see on television today. Therefore, it's not just an incident, but as a result of the incident, you're learning about how the incident takes place in actual trial settings. That's the beauty of this all. I look forward here soon to sharing another uh, podcast on another historic um, topic that um, bears a significant relevance to our country's well-being. Take care. What is it, sweetie?